welcome to Blood, Bodies, and Bones, a podcast about true crimes, murder mysteries, and more. I'm your host, Jay. How well do you know your neighbors? Do you ever stop and take a moment to talk to them, or simply nod your head hello when passing by? Do you really know who lives in that apartment across the hall from you, or wonder what the quiet neighbor that always keeps to themselves is really like? Well, in February 1983, tenants of a multi-unit apartment building started noticing problems with the building's plumbing. After discovering that they were all experiencing similar issues, one concerned tenant decided that it was time to contact a drain specialist to come and investigate and determine the reason for the blocked drain pipes. After entering a manhole by the side of the building, the drain inspector discovered the cause of the blockage. There appeared to be human remains inside. The tenants realized that they were living with a killer. This is Blood, Bodies, and Bones, Dennis Nilsson. Born in Fraserburgh, Scotland, on November 12, 1945, to Elizabeth White and Olav Nilsson, Dennis was the second of three children. His mother Elizabeth had married Olav, a former Norwegian soldier, against her parents' wishes in May of 1942. And while all was happy for the first few years, their marriage would end in divorce in 1948. As a result, Elizabeth's father, Andrew White, would take on the paternal role left vacant to his three grandchildren, Olav Jr., Dennis, and their sister, Sylvia. Dennis would become close to his maternal grandparents, especially his grandfather, Andrew, with whom Dennis adored and spent most of his youth around. In 1951, Andrew, who was a fisherman, suffered a heart attack while out at sea. The Nielsen children would again lose the only father figure in their life, and six-year-old Dennis, being closest to his grandfather, was especially affected by this loss. It has been reported that his mother Elizabeth, who was a strict Catholic, insisted that Dennis viewed his grandfather's corpse before the burial. Later in life, Dennis would recount on how this had a significant impact on his mental health, and would be the start of him becoming more withdrawn and secluded from others. His mother Elizabeth had remarried and had four more children, with her attention being focused on the younger of her offspring, she had little time for young Dennis. During his teenage years, Dennis had realized that he was uncertain of his sexuality. It was reported that he was unsure if he was gay or bisexual, as some of the boys he was attracted to, he commented, looked like his sister. It was even rumored that he had fondled both his brother and sister, with his brother waking up and catching him in the middle of the act. His brother, Olav Jr., began to belittle and taunt Dennis when they were in public, calling him a hen. Now, for those listeners who are unsure of what a hen is, it's a Scottish term or slang for a female. Dennis had claimed that he had no sexual encounters in his adolescence. With the bullying making him further ashamed and embarrassed than he already was, he decided that he would leave his family behind and join the cadet force of the British Army in 1961. After enlisting, Dennis became a cook in the catering corps learning butchering skills that he would later use during his five-year killing spree. Although he showered alone and kept his sexuality hidden during his nine years in the army, Dennis excelled at his duties and claimed that this was the happiest time in his life. Being shy, he would often drink to help him relax and socialize. While serving in West Germany, Dennis would frequently drink to the point of becoming drunk. It was during this period that Dennis had many sexual encounters with men. One particular night, he ended up waking up from a drinking binge on the floor of the apartment owned by a German colleague of his. Although there was no sexual activity exchange between the pair, it was thought that this is what led Dennis to start to fantasize about having sexual encounters 
with slender male partners who were unconscious or deceased. In 1972, after serving 11 years in the military, Dennis moved to London and joined the Metropolitan Police. The police service was not quite what he was expecting, though. Often finding himself alone during his off-duty time, Dennis complained that he missed the companionship and camaraderie he had experienced during his time in the Army. To help numb his loneliness, he again relied on alcohol and would start drinking in the evenings. Afterwards, he would go to local gay bars and engage in conversations and casual sexual encounters with other men. During his time with the Metropolitan Police, Dennis developed a fascination with visiting the morgue and autopsied bodies. This dark fascination would be one that would accompany Dennis for many years to come. The following year, Dennis left the Metropolitan Police and became employed at the job centre, where he worked as a civil servant. Later that same year, Dennis would experience his first brush with the police when David Painter, a man whom Dennis had met through his work, told police that Dennis took pictures of him while he was sleeping. David had been so furious about this that he confronted Dennis about the incident. Dennis was brought in for questioning, but later released without charge. By 1974, Dennis, who was a regular around the London gay bars, met David Gallican, and the two quickly became a couple, although David would later deny that the two ever had a homosexual relationship. By 1975, 30-year-old Dennis and 20-year-old David decided to move into a ground-floor flat in North London, and for the next two years, the couple seemed to be happy, even getting a dog together. However, their relationship eventually fell apart and David moved out. This left Dennis devastated and feeling rejected again. Continuing to live alone and after several failed flings, his life began a downward spiral of alcoholism and loneliness. At the end of 1978, after spending Christmas alone, Dennis was desperate to find someone to keep him company and to ease that loneliness. On December 29, 1978, Dennis ventured out to the Cricklewood Arms, one of the local bars he liked to frequent. There he met 14-year-old Stephen Holmes, an Irish laborer, and the two went back to Dennis's apartment on 195 Melrose Avenue. The pair continued drinking to the point of passing out. When Dennis woke, fear of abandonment began to set in. Worried that yet again he would end up alone, Dennis felt the urge to do everything necessary to keep this youth from leaving him. Grabbing one of his neckties, Dennis began strangling Stephen, before drowning him in a bucket of water. After completing his first kill, Dennis then bathed the lifeless corpse and placed the body back in his bed. He then attempted to have sex with the body and afterwards moved the corpse underneath the floorboards of his apartment, where it remained for the next seven months until finally burning the decaying remains and burying them in his backyard. In October 1979, Dennis met Andrew Ho, a young student from Hong Kong, and lured him to his flat with the promise of sex. The young student managed to escape after Dennis attempted to strangle him during a bondage play session. Andrew had reported the incident to the police. However, despite the young man's claims, no charges were pressed against Dennis. Nearly a year later from his first kill, Dennis would strike again. On December 3, 1979, Dennis met Canadian tourist Kenneth Ogden. After several hours of sightseeing and drinking, the two men ended up at Dennis's apartment. Knowing that the tourist would soon be leaving, Dennis again feared being left alone and strangled Kenneth with the wire from a set of headphones. Dennis then cleaned up the body and placed it in his bed. 
He positioned Kenneth in different poses, taking photographs, and then engaged in sex with the corpse. Once he was satisfied, Dennis moved the body under the floorboards of his flat. Kenneth was the only victim of Dennis's, who was reported as missing. Just five months later, on May 13, 1980, 34-year-old Dennis met up with 16-year-old Martin Duffy. Martin, who was homeless at the time, was invited by Dennis to spend the night at his apartment. Unaware of the nefarious nature of the invite, Martin accepted the offer of a warm place to stay for the night. However, after having a few drinks with Dennis, Martin would be dead before the morning. Once he fell asleep, Dennis strangled the boy to the point of unconsciousness. Wanting to make sure that the 16-year-old was dead, Dennis then dragged the body to the sink and placed his head under water. As with his other two victims, Dennis bathed the body, but this time he got in the bathtub with it. Once cleaned, Dennis placed Martin in his bed and proceeded to sit over the body, sexually stimulating himself. Once he was finished, he placed Martin in a wardrobe for two weeks before moving the body under the floorboards next to Kenneth. Dennis continued his killing spree with his fourth victim, Billy Sutherland. Billy occasionally worked as a male prostitute and had met Dennis in a pub, a frequent hunting ground for the serial killer at this point. Billy had followed Dennis home one evening, a decision that would have a fatal outcome for the 27-year-old. Dennis would end up strangling Billy, but this time, Dennis used his bare hands. Dennis's recollection of his next six victims were somewhat vague to say the least. They included another male prostitute, probably from the Philippines or Thailand, another Irishman he met in a bar, a long-haired hippie he found sleeping in a doorway, two young Scottish men that he had picked up in pubs in Soho, and one victim that his only recollection of was that he kept him under the floorboards, later cutting him into three pieces that he burned a year later. Piccadilly Circus is where Dennis found his 11th victim, a skinhead with a tattoo around his neck that said, Cut Here. Not too much else is known other than the man boasted to Dennis about how tough he was and how much he liked to fight. Once inebriated, the tattooed, self-proclaimed tough guy proved little match for Dennis, who hung the naked torso of his victim in his bedroom for 24 hours before burying him under the floorboards. On November 10th, 1980, Dennis met Douglas Stewart at the Golden Lion, another gay bar located in Dean Street. Douglas had woken while being strangled by Dennis and managed to fend off and get away from his attacker. Although he contacted local police almost immediately after being attacked, no action was taken as it was reported that the officers deemed the incident to be a domestic disagreement between two homosexual lovers. The next victim was 24-year-old Malcolm Barlow, who suffered from mental health issues and epilepsy. Dennis had found Malcolm loitering outside his apartment building. Malcolm complained of weakness from his epilepsy, so Dennis took him in and called for an ambulance. When Martin was released, he came back and sat outside of Dennis's apartment, waiting for him to return home. Dennis returned and invited the young man in for drinks. Shortly after, Malcolm fell asleep and Dennis strangled him on September 18, 1981. The next day, Dennis had to place Malcolm's body into the cupboard under the sink, as there weren't many spots left in the apartment. Dennis also had another issue to contend with as well. The smell. Other tenants in the six-unit apartment building had started to notice the stench, and one of his neighbors mentioned the persistent smell to Dennis. Dennis replied that it was the decay of the building that was emitting the rotten smell. As the rotten corpses were decomposing, 
Dennis attempted to mask the smell by spraying his apartment twice a day. Having been in the catering corps while enlisted in the army, Dennis had learned how to break down and butcher meat, a skill that proved to be useful as he knew that covering the stench with a scent wasn't going to work long term. So, Dennis decided to start removing his hidden trophies and cutting them up on his kitchen floor. He placed organs from some of the bodies into plastic bags, putting them back under the floor, and boiled the flesh off the head of his first victim. He then placed pieces of dismembered corpses into his garden shed, or in a hole near one of the bushes outside. When he could, Dennis would take the torsos that he had severed and placed in suitcases, along with the bags of organs, outside to the yard, and he would burn them in a fire just a few feet away from his fence. In the fall of 1981, Dennis was advised by his landlord that he wanted to renovate the apartment that Dennis had lived in, so he convinced Dennis to move. In October of the same year, Dennis had moved into an attic apartment located at 23 Cranley Gardens in London. Dennis viewed this move as a new start in a new location. With no floorboards to bury bodies under and no garden to hide his trophies in, Dennis thought that this would help with his homicidal tendencies. However, his urge to kill wouldn't take long before resurfacing. In November 1981, after settling into his new attic apartment at Cranley Gardens in the suburb of Muswell Hills, Dennis was again on the prowl at one of his usual hunting grounds, the Golden Lion, where he met 19-year-old Paul Nobbs. Dennis had invited Paul back to his apartment, where the two men spent the night. The following morning, Paul woke to find bruising around his neck. With minimal recollection of what had occurred during the time he spent with Dennis the prior evening, Paul was concerned and decided to visit his doctor, who informed the student that it appeared as though he had been strangled, and the doctor urged him to go to the police. Afraid of his sexual orientation being revealed, Paul decided not to report the incident to the authorities. Following the incident with Paul, Dennis was on the hunt again for a new victim. Carl, who was known as a drag queen by the name of Carla Fox, met Dennis at the Black Cap a pub in Camden Town, London, known for its drag cabaret. Carl woke up while Dennis was attempting to drown him in a bathtub full of cold water. Fortunately, Carl managed to fight off Dennis and escape. After this incident, it wasn't until December of 1981 that Dennis would be successful in murdering his next victim. Dennis met 23-year-old John Howlett in a pub near Leicester Square, and, as he had with his other victims, lured the young man back to his apartment. As was the case with Douglas Stewart, John would later wake up to Dennis strangling him. John put up a fight, but was ultimately overcome by Dennis, and was eventually drowned after having his head held underwater for five minutes. It was with this victim that would be the start of Dennis's undoing. With no floorboards or backyard garden to bury the body, Dennis dismembered his 13th victim, hiding various parts around his apartment, boiling some, and even flushing some of them down the toilet. His next victim was Graham Allen, a homeless man whom Dennis had met in Shaftesbury Avenue in 1982, luring him back to his attic apartment with the promise of a meal. After strangling the 27-year-old, Dennis placed the body in the bath, where it stayed for three days before he dismembered and disposed of the pieces as he did with his last victim. Dennis's 15th and last victim was Stephen Sinclair, the 20-year-old met Dennis in Oxford Street, and, after chatting for a while, Dennis of course suggested that they go back to his apartment. 
It was reported that Stephen was a drug addict who ended up in an alcohol and heroin-induced stupor while inside the apartment with Dennis. Dennis, of course, took advantage of the opportunity and strangled the young man. Dennis stripped the body naked, bathing it, and then laying it on the bed next to him. The corpse that made Dennis feel so loved and secure would ultimately be the one that would betray him. Dennis later dissected his victim, placing parts in plastic bags, storing some of them away in his wardrobe and dresser, and flushing others down the toilet. Early in February 1983, the old plumbing in the building where Dennis lived was of course experiencing issues. The tenants in the five other apartments were also noticing issues with the plumbing. One tenant decided to contact a drain specialist to come and investigate as to why the pipes were blocking. Mike Catran of Dino Rod was sent out to find and fix the block drain issue. When he descended into the manhole on the side of 23 Cranley Gardens, he discovered what appeared to be human remains. Concerned over this discovery, Mike contacted his supervisor, who suggested that another visit would need to be made at first light the next day in order to get a better look. When Mike returned the next morning, he discovered that the manhole cover was in a different position. After lifting off the cover, Mike found only a few bones and a small portion of what was originally found there the day prior. Dennis had removed majority of the pieces of flesh from inside the manhole the night before, approximately around midnight. Mike had contacted police at this point, concerned about the contents that he had found. On February 9th, 1983, knowing what was discovered the day prior, Dennis proceeded to go to work. He told one of his co-workers that if I'm not in tomorrow, I'll either be dead, ill, or in jail. They both laughed off the comment. However, Dennis knew that this wasn't a joke and sensed that something was coming for him. When he arrived home later that day, Dennis noticed three men were waiting for him in the hallway leading to his apartment. After being informed and questioned by Chief Inspector Peter J. about the human remains that were discovered in the drain, Dennis attempted to divert suspicion from himself by questioning the chief about where those remains came from. After explaining to Dennis that they had already knew where they came from, they had asked him where the rest of the body was. Dennis was ready to confess and admit to what he had done. Once he began to describe the crimes he committed in disgusting detail, he could not stop. Remember, Dennis thought he would have a new start when he moved to Cranley Gardens, that his urge to kill wouldn't resurface. I think in a way that there was a small part of Dennis that might have been relieved that he was caught. Police would search the attic apartment where Dennis had lived and found the hidden horrors waiting for them. A search of his closet exposed several bags of human remains in various stages of decomposition, which were taken to the mortuary for examination. Dennis provided police with the locations of where he hid some of the body parts of his victims, from the tea chest to the drawer in his bathroom. He also detailed to police that he had killed 12 to 13 men while he lived at his former apartment on Melrose Avenue in London, and told investigators about the other men that he attempted to kill. On February 11, 1983, police would begin formally questioning the 37-year-old. With over 30 hours of questioning over the course of the week, Dennis detailed his techniques when it came to dismembering bodies, and would assist police with identifying body parts of his victims. Dennis did not need much encouragement from the police when it came to information that he was willing to share, nor did he beg or plead for compassion. With no remorse for his crimes, 
Dennis explained that his ability to fake being calm was due to his professional training, presumably from his time in the army, allowing police to withdraw the information that they needed from him. Dennis cooperated with the authorities, providing them with the information they needed to obtain a conviction. The police were able to find and identify various body parts of Dennis's victims, enough to be able to assemble the individual parts into a single person. He also accompanied police to his former apartment on Melrose Avenue and pointed out to where he had burned the bodies. Before trial began in 1983, Dennis would fire his lawyer, Ronald T. Moss, but then reinstated him and then fired him again near the trial date. Dennis then hired Ralph Hames, the same lawyer who represented another prisoner, David Martin, with whom Dennis had a relationship while in prison. Ralph decided to go for diminished responsibility, citing that Dennis had mental abnormality. The defense lawyer, Ivan Lawrence, was asking for manslaughter. To try and assist the prosecution, Dennis had detailed his memories to paper, writing over 50 notebooks and drawing a series of sketches illustrating what he had done to some of his victims. Dennis was charged with six counts of murder and two charges of attempted murder. While the defense's strategy was to rely upon the psychiatric analysis, the prosecutor, Alan Green, stated that Dennis was fully aware of his actions when he killed his victims, providing Dennis's statement to the police as principal evidence. The trial began on October 24, 1983, with Dennis pleading not guilty to each of the charges read. Although Paul Nobbs, Carl Stodder, and Douglas Stewart took the stand and testified against Dennis, he was quick to point out some of the problems with their statements to his lawyer undermining their credibility. He had said that Douglas had stayed for another drink after the alleged attack, a fact that Douglas could not explain. The defense counsel eventually got Douglas to admit to selling the story to the media. Paul Nobbs admitted to the sexual encounter with Dennis, even describing how Dennis appeared to be friendly throughout the evening. It was Carl Stodder's chilling detail of events, though, that damaged the defense. Dennis's interviews with the police were read, and evidence, including a set of knives that belonged to Martin Duffy, the cutting board Dennis Nilsson used to dissect one victim, and the cooking pot, were presented. Alan Green described the events of Nilsson's arrest to the jury, but did not show the photographs of the remains that were found. During the trial, psychiatrist Dr. James McKeith was brought in by the defense to discuss various aspects of unspecified personality disorder which he believed Dennis had suffered from. Dr. McKeith argued that Dennis had trouble expressing his feelings and fled any relationship that went wrong. He described how these behaviors had been there since childhood. Dennis was able to separate his mental and behavioral functions to an extraordinary degree, which implied diminished responsibility for what he was doing. He detailed the association that Dennis had between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal. Dr. McKeith further detailed how Dennis had an impaired sense of identity and was able to depersonalize others, so much so that he did not feel much about what he was doing to them. When cross-examined by the prosecutor, Dr. McKeith was forced to retract his judgment regarding the diminished responsibility in all the cases. A second psychiatrist, Dr. Patrick Gowie, was called and diagnosed Dennis as, quote, borderline false self as if pseudo-normal narcissistic personality disorder, or false self syndrome, which meant that Dennis had occasional outbreaks 
of schizoid disturbances that he managed to keep at bay most of the time. Such a person is most likely to disintegrate under circumstances of social isolation, and, according to Dr. Galway, this was indication enough that Dennis was not guilty of malice aforethought or premeditation. Dr. Paul Bowden, who had spent 14 hours with Dennis, was called as a rebuttal psychiatrist during the trial. As Dr. Bowden spent more time with Dennis than the other psychiatrist, he found Dennis to be manipulative and saw him with a mental abnormality rather than a mental disorder. As the trial was coming to a close, the judge had a final reminder for the jury and stated that a mind can be evil without being abnormal. On November 4th, 1983, at 4.25 p.m., the jury returned with a verdict of guilty on all counts. 38-year-old Dennis Nielsen was sentenced to life in prison with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years with no eligibility for parole. While serving his sentence, Dennis wrote almost obsessively, everything from poetry to over 40 journals about himself and an autobiography titled The History of a Drowning Boy, a book that he would later try to have published but without success. In the early 1990s, Dennis commented on the arrest of Jeffrey Dahmer, a killer who, like Dennis, preyed on young men and boys. It wouldn't be too long before Dahmer's infamy would surpass that of Dennis's, with Dennis eventually being referred to as the British version of Jeffrey Dahmer. On May 12, 2018, Dennis suffered from a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm and died at the age of 72. It was reported that only three prisoner officers attended his funeral service. His family, however, did not. And that is the case of Dennis Nilsson. Want to share your thoughts about this episode? Head on over to our Instagram page, Blood Bodies and Bones Podcast. Or you can find us on Facebook at Blood Bodies and Bones Podcast. The links are in the episode description. If you like this episode, why not subscribe to Blood Bodies and Bones so you can be notified when a new episode is available. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Thank you for joining me and letting me share this story with you. I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back on June 1st with a brand new episode. Until then, remember to keep your doors locked, your curtains closed, and maybe leave that light on when you go to sleep. Thank you.